Today we are going down to Georgia in a case that has fascinated me for years. It has all the makings of an 80s horror film. Devil worshippers, a creepy castle in the woods, sex, and multiple murders. But, like a lot of horror films, there's always a tragic twist. This is a case of baseless rumors, senseless violence, and two lovers just trying to get away from the cruelty of the outside world, only to find it knocking right at their door. This is the Corpsewood Manor Murders. Hey strangers, welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed last week. And if you came from the YouTube video on the case, we apologize. We had a bit of a um, technical difficulty about halfway through, about 30 minutes into it, the SD card got full. That's my fault. And so we kind of, we don't have that footage, but... We apologize for that, and hopefully you stick with us. This is a learning experience for all of us, and the more we do it, the more we get, we'll get better. And so we hope you uh, stick a look, stick around for the ride, and we promise you won't regret it. Stick a look, stick a look. And so, I mean, let's just jump into this case because this is one of those pet cases, as they like to call them, like a case that you really research, you read up on, you're fascinated by. And this is definitely a case that I come back to every few years and read about just because it's weird, it's outlandish, it's tragic, and uh, I'm excited to tell you about it and tell all of you. Yeah, I mean, just from the intro that you read, A Castle in the Woods, uh, I mean, just the name of the manor gives it a creepy feel, so I'm in. I feel like I'm about to hear a, a horror story. And this pretty much is like a horror story, and I think that's one of the reasons why it fascinates me. Because like I said, I mean, it, you know, a literal castle in the woods, there's going to be orgies, drugs, satanic, devil worshippers maybe, and uh, it's just a very fascinating case. So let's jump right into it. Oh, and before we get too far into this, I want to mention that most of the info from this comes from the book The Corpsewood Manor Murders by Amy Petula. So... On the morning of December 16, 1982, Raymond Williams made his way up Dead Horse Road, an old logging road that led to Corpsewood Manor, the isolated mansion in the middle of the Chattahoochee National Forest that was home to two friends of his, the reclusive Dr. Charles Scudder and Joey Autumn. Now, upon arriving, he found the pair's only vehicle, their 1976 CJ5 Jeep, missing. An unusual sight since the two only ever came down off the mountain at the beginning of every month in order to get supplies. Raymond approached the house anyway, ready to deliver the news that a mutual friend of theirs had passed away since the couple did not have a phone, and in fact, they had no electricity or water at all. As he approached the house, he was stopped dead in his tracks by a horrific sight. Bullet holes riddling the door leading to the kitchen. Raymond quickly got back in his car and drove back down the mountain to alert the police. 
something terrible had happened at Corpsewood Manor. So let's rewind a bit to the beginning. You know, we always like to open with the the inciting incident, the starting gun, and then we'll uh, flash back to how we got to this point. So, and this is me kind of trying to flex my creative writing muscle here a bit, so please stick with me. The Devil Went Down to Georgia, it's an iconic song in pop culture, but for many people in the small town of Tryon, Georgia, the devil really did come to town. Two, in fact, in the form of Dr. Charles Scudder and Joseph Autumn, a gay couple from Chicago. The two mysterious outsiders crept into town seemingly overnight and made their home deep within the woods on the outskirts of town, only wandering down to fill up on supplies every few weeks in a jeep with what appeared to be satanic symbols painted on the side. So, uh, for 1980s Georgia town, this was definitely not what uh, most people would expect to see on a Sunday morning. They weren't keeping very low profile if they're swinging into a Bible Belt town with satanic symbols on their vehicle. Well, you know, like, you've got to make an entrance, so that's one way to get people to start whispering about you. And that's exactly what the people in that town did, because it wasn't long after they moved that whispers started swirling around town about the devil worshippers who live in a mansion out in the middle of the woods. Pretty soon, curious locals began making their way up Dead Horse Road to get to the equally morbidly named house, Corpsewood Manor. Upon arriving, they would be greeted by Dr. Scudder from the dark he would call out to them, Who am I? If they answered correctly, then they were, wel- they were warmly welcomed And if they didn't answer correctly, well, they were warmly welcomed. Because, you see, in reality, Charles Scudder and his partner Joey were in fact Satanists, but they were far from some movie-worthy villain. Let's start with Charles. He was born on October 6, 1926, in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. And just a random fun fact from that book, that's also the day that Babe Ruth hit his historic record-breaking third home run in a World Series game. So for all you uh, sports fanatics out there, he was born to Charles and Eleanor Scudder, and the family was very well off. Both of the parents were college educated, and his dad was actually a hydraulics engineer. So they were fortunate enough and able to send Charles Jr. to college as well. There he stuttered. He stuttered. (laughs) He stuttered. He stuttered. He studied zoology and language. Now, he was actually married twice to two different women before he met Joseph. His first marriage only lasted about two years and ended shortly before he got his master's degree in 1949. Not long after that, he married his second wife, and the two had five children together. Now, this marriage lasted for almost a decade, but in 1959, the two divorced, and Charles packed up and moved to Chicago. In Chicago, he did go back to school at the Stritch Medical School of Loyola University and graduated with a PhD in pharmacology in 1964. Now this actually allowed him to get a professorship at the school where he specialized in experimental therapeutics. And that is code for he was actually working in a program where they were working with government funded experiments with hallucinogenic drugs, mainly LSD. Sounds like a party. So I mean, you know, spend all those years going to school and you get to work with play around with LSD, so, you know, it was worth it. Now, please stay with me on this because you might be wondering what this does have what this has to do with the crime case, but I promise it does come up later and plays a very important role. Now, Charles was not your typical professor, and he seemed to relish in challenging all of the societal norms of the 1970s for men. He dyed his hair purple, he had a pet monkey, 
and a pink gargoyle fountain. He was not afraid to live how he wanted. Especially in that time. Yeah, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and he's going out of his way to be like, you know, I'm not bound by your rules, so you got to love him for it. Now, at some point after moving to Chicago, Charles met Joey Autumn, and it wasn't long after that meeting that Joey actually moved in and began working as a housekeeper and cook for Charles because, as Charles put it, he had a talent for whipping up meals fit for a king. Joey had a much harder life than Charles. He grew up in extreme poverty, and both uh, both of his parents dropped out of school by the fourth grade in order to work full-time. Joey himself ended up dropping out of school in the fifth grade, and pretty soon he turned briefly to a life of petty crimes before he was finally thrown in jail. It's there that he said he learned to cook, and pretty soon after getting out, he began to try and turn his life around, and that's when he met Charles. Pretty soon, the two began to grow even closer, and Charles began to refer to Joey as his companion rather than his employee. So much so that right before the two left Chicago for Georgia, Charles Charles attempted to disinherit his kids and leave everything to Joey in case something happened to him. Now, Charles began to grow tired of polite society, as he put it, and wanted a place where he and Joey could live their lives in peace and privacy. Joey agreed, and the two began making plans to find a place to run away together and finally start their lives. The two spent several years researching large plots of land in the southern states, completely surrounded by the forest, and they finally found a 40-acre plot of land in the middle of the Chattahoochee National Forest in Tryon, Georgia, which Charles bought in 1975 for $10,500. And I'm not sure how much that translates to today, but that's, uh, I'm sure, a pretty hefty penny. But, you know, he had it. He was a doctor, so. In 1976, on his 50th birthday, Charles Charles resigned from the medical school and parted ways. But... Not before swapping three vials of LSD and two human skulls. I mean, if you're going to go, go out with a bang. Yeah, you can leave him something to remember you by. <laughs> he spent the rest of the year auctioning, auctioning off all of his possessions and using the money to buy a wood stove, a Jeep, and a camper. By January 1977, the two men packed up what little they had and headed down to Georgia in the middle of a severe blizzard. Along for the ride were the couple's pair of English mastiffs named Beelzebub, and I'm sorry if I butcher this, uh, Arsenoth. So Beelzebub is, you know what Beelzebub is, don't you? He's one of the, the, the devils of hell, like the, I guess the generals mm-hmm. of hell. And then uh, Arsenoth is based on the soul-switching H.P. Lovecraft character named Asenoth. Uh HP's got some weird names, so I apologize to all the Lovecraft fans out there if I butchered that. After several hours of trying to navigate the woods in the snow, the two finally reached the road leading to their new home, and the first thing they saw was a rotting horse carcass lying in the middle of the road. What a warm welcome. Yeah. So now I think most people would take that as a very bad omen, but Charles, being Charles, laughed and decided to name their new road Dead Horse Road, stating that every tradition has a genesis. So you you gotta love that about him. Um, I think he's definitely one of those characters that sees the the good in every situation, even when you uh, find a rotting horse in the middle of your new home. You just call that welcome to the South. Pretty much, you know. So after arriving, the two men began clearing a spot for their future mansion and built the entire thing by hand by themselves. 
They used nothing but hand tools to clear the fields and lay the bricks, sleeping in their Jeep and campers while they made the slow, steady progress. Finally, after a year, they had completed their dream house but it still needed a name. As is tradition, the name of a house is usually based off some defining feature of the house or surrounding property. And thinking back to the horse carcass that laid amongst the hardwood trees that surrounded the house, Charles christened the house Corpsewood Manor. That's actually kind of cool. It is. And, you know, this definitely, um, they wanted to get away from society and they literally built all this by hand. Oh, no. And I'll put photos up of it and it's, huge i'm in awe of how they did all that in a year i mean it's really impressive they they go out they're doing this by hand and everything this man has a plan and he is executing it you know like this is a driven man you can tell a smart man driven and he knows what he wants and he's making it happen and I admire that about him and so and that's i think that's one of the reasons this case has always fascinated me is just because he does seem like the, the Charles Scudder seems more like a larger than life type character. And so it's just um, one of those cases that always struck a chord with me. So the manor was beautiful, but don't expect any modern day amenity, amenities, amenities, in, amenities, amenities. Thank you. You're welcome. Inside. They had no running water or electricity, and this was completely by choice because Charles did not want to owe money to anybody. He wanted to be completely self-sufficient and live off the land for the most part. The two had a well dug as well as an underground cooling system to keep things cold. They also had a small man-made pond with a water pump and a garden of vegetables and roses along with a beehive for fresh honey. The two even made and bottled their own wine, which from what friends of theirs described, it was potent it would knock you on your ass so i'm kind of sad i didn't get to try any but their favorite thing they built was a three-story chicken house and on top and on the top floor they had a room they called the pink room which is where they would entertain most of their guests in the chicken house in the chi- on the top of the chicken house so it was a chicken house and then you climb a ladder and then it's the pink room and i'll get into more like what's in there because that plays a very big part but uh it definitely seemed like a fascinating room but you know both these guys they wanted to be completely off the grid so like no water electricity just for the fact that they did not want to have to owe anything to anybody and so um i think it's kind of sweet they just wanted to get away and just where they can live their lives together in peace now joey and charles were very keen on keeping to themselves for the most part in their little slice of forest. But it didn't take long for word to spread in a small town, and pretty soon curious locals began making their way up to the manor. Most of the time they were prepared to angrily yell at the devil worshippers to leave, and some just to see if the rumors were true. And, um, you know, I get wanting to be left alone, but, you know, having pentagrams and stuff painted on the side of your Jeep is... Uh... Not keeping low profile, not not keeping to what you want the end result to be which is people to leave you alone but it's keeping true to you and that's what they wanted be outrageous all were greeted with humor all the people that came up to the manor and warmth from charles and his two massive mastiffs running up to greet them although charles would always tell guests that they were trained to attack if a threat was near but very few were actually allowed inside the manor itself Charles often forbid anyone to go in and instead entertain them inside the pink room at the top of the chicken house. So this pink room plays a very big part in this whole case. The two lived in 
idyllic harmony, Joey spending his time baking and Charles sitting atop of their gazebo and playing his harp. Something guests described as hauntingly beautiful. Despite the rumors still swirling around town about the Satanists in the woods, everyone who actually visited the two described the atmosphere at the manor as warm, friendly, and relaxed. The rumors were also furthered by the fact that Charles and Joey would often host pleasure parties. Uh-oh, here we go. It was discovered that Charles often wrote correspondence with male inmates in prisons across the United States and would often invite them to the manor should they get released. This is one of the main uses of the pink room, which contained a pornography collection and sex toys and bondage gear. So there's where the um, pink room comes into play. And he would also entertain the people who come from town in the same room? Yes. Okay, Charles. Uh, and you'll find out later. Like, there, was very, there was a few uh, townspeople they got close with that were allowed inside the manor, but very, very, very few. So most of them were entertained in the pink room. And I don't think it was like on display. I do think there was like in cabinets and stuff that they hid when they okay. had more, less. Yeah, it almost would seem like if it wasn't that they really are kind of being like poking the bear at this point. Just a little bit. I understand. I think, I think that's part of it too, though. It's like they did love kind of poking the bear, but then not reeling it back before it got too far. And again, that's just one thing to, that fascinates me about them. They were very open with t- taking strangers into the pink room and entertaining, and entertaining them, treating almost every stranger as an old friend. There, they would share their wine, smoke pot, and oftentimes have sex, although they were never pushy and would always respect anyone's wish if they weren't interested in sex. Now, also another note from the book, Corpsewood Manor became a very popular hangout spot with the youth of Tryon because Charles would happily allow the kids to drink and smoke weed on his property. So if they couldn't do it at home, they were always welcome to do it up at Corpsewood Manor. So needless to say, he became a pretty big hit with the the teens of Tryon. And I'm sure a not-so-big hit with the parents of the teens of Tryon. Now, this kindness of welcoming any stranger into their lives began to prove disastrous when they met Kenneth Avery Brock, a a 14-year-old dropout who was kicked out by his abusive parents and spent his time working labor jobs around town. It was in the fall of 1982 that Kenneth first met the gay devil worshippers, as he would call them. He was an avid hunter in his free time and asked them if he could hunt on their land, and they happily agreed. Eventually, the team began talking with the couple and was eventually invited back to the pink room where they hung out, got drunk on Charles's wine, and it was at one of these meetings that Kenneth allowed Charles to perform oral sex on him. And now I know what everyone's thinking, and I'm thinking the same thing too. This is a 14-year-old boy. But also another interesting fact that I read in this case is that actually wasn't illegal back then in Georgia because the age of consent was 14. And I'm not like trying to condone that or justify it, but I'm just saying that was an interesting fact that I read. But also at this time, it was technically illegal for anyone to have sex in Georgia if you weren't married. So I think it's just one of those, a single county in that state has that law or whatever. But Kenneth continued to visit the couple often in order to get drunk with them before he brought Tony West with him. And we'll learn that Tony West is a very big dickhead. Because, let's just start off the bat, when he was 13, he shot and killed his two-year-old cousin, but got off because he claimed it was an accident and he didn't know the gun was loaded. 
After that, he spent several years in and out of mental institutions until he was 18. A few years before the incident at Corpsewood, he actually shot his brother-in-law and already had a violent criminal record. By the fall of 1982, he decided to get a roommate, Kenneth Avery. Kenneth told Tony all about Scudder and Autumn and how they freely shared their wine with anyone. So, Tony agreed to go visit them with Kenneth one evening. The foursome enjoyed an evening drinking together when Charles and Kenneth began engaging in homosexual acts, according to Tony, who quickly left when Charles attempted to make an advance towards him. It didn't take long after this visit that Tony and Kenneth began planning to rob the queers, as they put it. Tony assumed, since they lived in a mansion in the woods, that Scudder and Autumn had to be filthy rich. And, some re and for some reason assumed that the two must keep their fortune hidden somewhere inside of Corpsewood. And so, one, they weren't rich because Charles sold all his shit and then used what money he had to build Corpsewood. And so that's, that is their money. And then also, two, even if they were rich, who, I don't know anyone who would keep it all inside their house. Maybe somebody who didn't want to be part of society. That is true. Yeah, that's a fair point. That is fair. So the two figured it would be the perfect crime since no one would hear them scream out in the woods. Kenneth at this point was also justifying the robbery as restitution for Scudder since Tony had helped convince him that he was being taken advantage of again by the queers, as they put it. It was also at this point that Tony began telling Kenneth that in order to get answers as to the location of the money, they'll, tor they'll torture Charles by raping him with a soldering iron. Oh, wow. And uh, it, now it is believed that the two didn't realize that the main manor at the house didn't have electricity. Since they were only allowed in the pink room, they thought that, the, that was the only room that didn't have electricity, so they were not aware that, no, nah, this whole place is electric electricity free. So during the first week of December 1982, the pair made at least one trip to Corpsewood under the guise of hanging out and possibly having sexual relations in an attempt to get Scudder to let them into the main manor so they could get a layout of the place and where any possible money might be kept. But Scudder sh shut that shit down immediately and only allowed them into the pink room. Like we said earlier, very few people were ever allowed into the actual manor unless a close friend. So after the failed mapping attempt, the two just decided to say fuck it and carried it out anyway. And that leads us to December 12th, 1982. That morning, Raymond Williams actually arrived at Corpsewood to, take, to tell the pair about a friend in the hospital. And this is the same friend that passed away and he was going to the manor to inform them of when he found the bullet hole ridden door. So the trio talked for a while before Scudder began to play his harp while reciting lines from the poem The Tiger by William Blake. And now, so there was an, actually a documentary made in 1984 by Joanna Thompson entitled Corpsewood, and I do not recommend it at all because it's extremely biased and almost paints Scudder and Autumn as deserving of what is about to become of them. Because they were devil worshippers, as she called it. And uh, it's a very one of those very Christian-y religion, like, oh, you see what happens to devil worshippers and all this type of situations. Very propaganda-y. So it was trash, except it did actually contain the final audio recording of Scudder made by Raymond the day he was murdered. And I'm going to play a quick clip of that here. And it is really, it is hauntingly beautiful as his friends describe it. And it's even more haunting because it, this is the last known recording of Dr. Charles Scudder. <laughs> 
the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Raymond soon left, and the, that would be the last time anyone saw Dr. Scudder and Joey Autumn alive. That night is when Kenneth and Tony decide to set their plans into motion. Wes borrowed his mother's 22 caliber rifle and claimed that he was going rabbit hunting. After this, the two went to Tony's sister's trailer where they picked up Tony's 17-year-old nephew, Joey Wells, and to avoid confusion, I'll just call him Wells from this point and Teresa Hudgens, who was on a first date with Joey at the time. Now, there's still a lot of speculation about how much knowledge Wells had of all this going to Corpsewood and what was going to happen. There's evidence to support that he did know a lot, and there's evidence to support that he didn't. But now Teresa 100% did not know what was going to happen. She was just going on a first date. She was, and you'll see here in a minute that this was the first date from hell. And uh, there is not going to be a second date. Anyway, Wes and Kenneth picked the two other teenagers up and told them they were going to the top of the mountain with the devil worshippers. Since they often let teens go there to get drunk on their wine and smoke pot, as the teens made their way up the mountain, they all decided to take turns huffing Tootaloo. Do you know what Tootaloo is? I do not know what Tootaloo just is. guess what you think Tootaloo, tootaloo? is. They huffed it. Guess what? Just try and guess what you think Tootaloo is. Uh, I would have no idea. Tootaloo, it, something like you're supposed to say goodbye. It's a mixture of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. I guess it's to say Tootaloo to the world because you're going to pass out. It's Tootaloo to your brain cells, that's for sure. What and a- these are 14, 15-year-old kids. Just, you know, first day... Take a little tootaloo with you. Go visit the devil worshippers. I mean, what more could you want? So, uh, <laughs> tootaloo. Please stay away from tootaloo, kids. So the four arrived at Corpsewood and were greeted by Scudder, who asked if they had a cigarette so he could give it to Joey. He invited them all up to the pink room, which you can also only get to by scaling a ladder on the side of the building. So it's like single file line. Once up there, the four all began drinking and having a good time before Brock excused himself and went down to his car to retrieve the rifle. Upon returning, Scudder spotted the rifle and looked right at him, smiled while making a finger gun and sing bang, bang. Scudder is mentioned often by associates as being a master diffuser of tense situations, often deflecting it with his sense of humor. And I think I can relate to that because, you know, like through college and stuff, like, you know, drunken night on the town and stuff like that, I've always been the one to, like, crack a joke and, like, diffuse the situation. And I think that's always the best course, you know, re-lighten the mood up a little bit. And so that's just another one of those fascinating qualities. You know, some random guy shows up in your house with a gun. You're just like, oh, bang, bang. So interesting guy. I don't think it's going to end well, though. And unfortunately, it does not. But it does seem this worked for a little bit because Brock laughed, sat the rifle down before going back to drinking with the group. Eventually, Scudder stood back up to go get something, and that's when Brock grabbed him by the hair and put a knife to his neck. 
And even then, Scudder just laughed, saying, What game do you want to play? I'll play your game. Brock responded by throwing Scudder on a mattress and tying his hands behind his back with strips of a sheet before demanding to know where the money was. By this point, Teresa and Wells were freaked out and tried to escape, but were quickly caught by West, who held them at gunpoint. An interesting point from the book, so Wells apparently was able to talk West into letting them all get back into the car, but... After the car failed to start, West took this as a sign that this was supposed to happen tonight and ordered everyone out of the car and back into the pink room. And so somehow they managed to convince him like to leave. It wasn't worth it. But as they were about to leave, the car wouldn't start. And so they, one of them took it as a sign of uh, this was meant Divine to happen. Intervention. Divine intervention. So it's always, and that's one of those aspects that always fascinates me with cases where it's like that one thing where it's like, if that had just been different, like had the car started, you know, we might not be talking about the tragedy as we are today. So at this point, the two remembered that Joey was still inside the house, and so Brock left the others in the pink room and went outside. In the house, Joey was cleaning up after dinner with the two dogs asleep by the wood stove for warmth. The people, including Scudder, still in the pink room, heard multiple rounds of bullets before Brock returned, stating, I killed the man and his dogs. Oh, that's awful. So I'm sorry, but the dogs do die too. Police would reveal that Joey had been shot four times in the head and once in the arm. The two sleeping mastiffs were also shot where they were sleeping. Brock would first try to claim that when he confronted Joey, that Joey tried to pull out his own gun, but that was quickly proven to be bullshit when no other gun was found at the scene. He then claimed that he didn't know he was firing at Joey and just fired wildly into the house through the door. Four times into the head. Four times into the head. And like I said, two sleeping dogs. Like when they were found, they hadn't even moved. They were still asleep. Yeah, buddy, that was an accident. Brock and West eventually forced the others into Corpsewood. Up until this point, Scudder had kept his usual coolness about him. But all of that changed when he walked into the kitchen and the first sight he saw was Joey dead on the floor and bleeding out. Teresa Hutchins would later say that Scudder released a moan of grief the best he could through his gag. West forced Scudder past Autumn and into the library where he removed the gag to continue to demand where the money is. To which Scudder kept trying to tell him that he had no money in the house and that the house was all that he had. It was at this point he asked him if he had a soldering iron. And Scudder responded, no, I don't have electricity, you dumbass. (laughs) Dr. Charles Scudder then stood to his feet. Even though they were bound, he fought to move forwards towards Joey's body, ignoring the demands of his captors to sit back down. Sit back down or I'll shoot, Wes screamed. Scudder looked him dead in the eyes and calmly responded with, I asked for this. Scudder continued to try and make his way to Autumn as which point West shot him in the face, which brought him to his knees. This guy's got something about shooting people in the face. Well, Scudder continued to try and stand up and make his way over to Joey. This caused West to shoot him three more times in the head, causing Scudder to fall into a sitting position against the bookshelf. And now a lot of this a lot of time has been focused on trying to figure out what Dr. Scudder meant when he said I asked for this. And it ranges everywhere from inviting Kenneth and Tony into his home to building the manor to living the as a Satanist. So it's still a hot topic of debate of 
what he really meant with his, uh, as far as we know, his dying words. But he still, nobody deserves this, you know? Oh, no, not at all. I think he, you know, it's hard to say what was going through his head at that moment. Because like I said, they moved away from civilization to get away from this exact thing, and now he can't escape it. It's right at his door. But believing the two to be dead, Tony and Kenneth began to ransack the house looking for money. They also allegedly made Wells join them in the ransacking, but Teresa would later claim that he did so on his own free will. They were also mostly they would also mostly come up empty handed, save for a few bags of change, some jewelry, and a jewel encrusted dagger. After they finished, Brock suggested they burn the place down to hide the evidence, but it was Wells who warned them that that would draw too much attention to them. So the guy claiming he had no idea beforehand is like, Well, we can't do that. That'll draw you know, that'll get people onto us. And it's like, buddy, you know, if you're not a part of it, you have nothing to worry about. And again, this was his and Teresa's first date. And so, could you imagine? They, she's technically a hostage at this point, and it only gets worse for her as a hostage. It's fucking ridiculous. That's when they heard sounds, gurgling sounds, coming out, coming from Doctor Scudder. Brock walked up to him and fired a fifth shot. And remember that this is an important detail. He shot him five times. Right between his eyes before turning to West and saying, Now, by God, tell me I don't have the guts to kill somebody. The group then heard more noises coming from the kitchen, and going to investigate, they found Joey had managed to drag himself out of the kitchen and into the dining room. Brock went up to him and fired another round into his head. These guys were tough. You can't keep a good man down. They definitely didn't go down without a fight. As they loaded everything into Scudder's Jeep, since their car had stopped working, remember, they passed by a very interesting painting, one that watched them as they left Corpsewood Manor. And I will reveal this at the end, but this is uh, another detail that is one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this case. So eventually, their car did start working, and so uh, Wells eventually got the car to start, and he took off too. So now they have both cars. And Wells is the one who has nothing to do with this, yeah. but he's driving on his own away. Exactly. So Wells is the one that was on a first date with Teresa. Now afterwards, Wes dropped Teresa and jo Joey, Wells, back off at his sister's trailer, and immediately Teresa begged Joey to call the police, to which he responded, I'm not going to get my uncle in trouble. He's like, he said to her, like, are you crazy? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get my uncle in trouble. That would be wrong. He then made her stay with him for several days after the murder until things cooled down. Hostage. Hostage. Now, Joey's mother could sense something was wrong and asked the girl what happened. And Teresa again burst into tears and begged Myra, that was her name, Myra, to call the police. And you know what she did? She said the same thing her son did, that she didn't want to get him in trouble and she forced Teresa to stay with them again for a while longer. And so now she's being held hostage by mother and son. And I guess she's like, man, I just wanted to go on a first date. And now I'm literally being held hostage for a week. They basically kept her as a prisoner for four days until she was finally able to get away and call her uncle on December 16th, the day the bodies were found at Corpsewood. So by this point, Wes and Brock 
were already on the run and had made it all the way to Vicksburg, Mississippi. On December 13th, they parked at a rest stop to sleep before deciding that they needed to find a less suspicious vehicle, since remember, they are driving Dr. Scudder's Jeep, which has pentagrams painted all over the door. So it's not a very subtle getaway car, you dumbasses. That's when they noticed a man sleeping in his car next to him. Lieutenant Kirby Key Phelps. The duo pointed a gun at his head, and he willingly allowed himself to be handcuffed. While Brock loaded their stuff into Kirby's vehicle, Wes led a handcuffed Kirby into the woods and attempted to handcuff him to a tree. But Kirby managed to break free and attempted to attack West, who proceeded to shoot him three times in the head before stealing his wallet. And his body wouldn't be discovered until December 15th. So again, another senseless murder. And these guys just keep digging their grave. And graves for other people, which is worse. The two took their new ride and began making their trek down to Mexico in an attempt to escape. By the time the bodies were discovered and the police began their investigation, it didn't take them long to connect the abandoned Jeep in Mississippi to Scudder. It also didn't take them long for the it also didn't take long for the locals to hear about the horrors at Corpsewood, and pretty soon dozens of people and cars began attempting to make their way to Corpsewood in hopes of seeing the bodies or maybe even getting a souvenir. And when I say getting a souvenir, they had people literally sneaking past the investigation, the crime scene tape, and ripping flowers that Joey had planted and stones. And, you know, the people that they wanted to leave and get away from their town, now all of a sudden they're stealing their shit. People are weird. By December 18th, Brock and West were in Texas and running out of money, West still wanted to go to Mexico, but Brock decided to hitch back to Georgia. Finally, after a couple more weeks on the run, West walked up to an off-duty officer in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and turned himself in. Uh, and that's another interesting story I read. Like, he just literally just walked up to this guy sitting in his car, and he goes, Hey, man, I just committed three murders. And the officer's like, Oh, ha, 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 yeah, why don't you go home, buddy? And he's like, No, really, please, take me in. And so uh, at least they had the damn decency to do that. says like my sweet satan on or it's supposedly yeah so during the 80s it was the satanic panic this was also what caused like the west memphis three case in the early 90s and stuff like that and so it was a legitimate people freaking out by supposed devil worshipers that were like kidnapping and killing their kids and so a lot of people in the community are like yeah maybe he they did drug him and also this was initially supported when it was the vials of lsd were discovered in a locked drawer at the manor during the investigation. So remember, those are those three vials of LSD that Dr. Scudder took when he left the university. And so um, initially, police were starting to believe this until it was quickly thrown out 
one after the testimony from Teresa, who stated she drank from the same wine they did and felt no ill effect, no ill effects. And to top it off, when asked if they knew the effects of LSD, Avery stated, "No, not until I got in here." <laughs> so, uh, not very bright, but also, oh Lord, they're idiots, absolute idiots. Many, er many in the area believed the queer devil worshippers got what they deserved. And this was only further backed when Corpsewood and the Pink Room were burned down by arsonists only weeks after the murder. Some theories state religious zealots in an attempt to exercise evil from the property. The case quickly began to focus less on the criminals and more on painting the victims themselves in a negative light, with papers referring to Scudder and Autumn as the gay devil worshippers. A near two-hour-long documentary called Corpsewood was also released in 1983 and featured extreme religious bias. So again, it's that documentary talking about how they deserved what they got because they were gay and they were devil worshippers and uh, just very shitty all around. Kenneth Brock was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, which he is still currently serving in Georgia State Prison. Tony West was also found guilty and actually sentenced to die in the electric chair. However, this was eventually overturned and, it is now, and he is now currently serving life in Augusta State Medical Prison. Now, it was initially reported that Joey was cremated and had his ashes spread on his rose garden at Corpsewood. Uh, however, according to the Corpsewood book, there is also the possibility that he wasn't cremated and actually his body is buried in an undisclosed location somewhere on the Corpsewood property. And this is actually this was actually his final wish when he died to be buried at Corpsewood. However, whether or not this is true has never been confirmed due to police wanting to keep potential grave robbers away. I could see that. I mean, somebody came and burned down everything, so there's, there's al already been people up there doing nefarious deeds. Yeah, and people are just shitheads in general, so understandable why they'd want to keep that private and also, you know, let the poor man rest. Charles Scudder was for sure cremated and his ashes returned to Milwaukee per his sister's request. Although again, there is actually a possibility that at least some of his ashes were also scattered at Corpsewood so that they could be with Joey. Uh, I kind of hope they were. I do too. And that's the least they deserve to be together for eternity in the place that made them happy. Even though Corpsewood burned down, visitors from all over still continue to go and visit the ruins, which are slowly being reclaimed by nature. But, should you be one of those visitors, it is advised that you not take anything from the property, or else you will suffer the Corpsewood curse. There's always got to be a There's good curse. Always got to be a curse. Because many people have reported over the years that people return bricks they've taken from the foundation and apologized after suffering a rash of bad luck and accidents. It is also reported that if you go there with ill intent, your car will not start and you could become stranded. Friends have actually reported that this is most likely Scudder because he had a mischievous side and loved to play, loved to play pranks on people. So, uh, you know, if you go there, please... Don't touch anything. Now, the big thing, that piece of artwork that I mentioned earlier, going back to this, because this was the part where, like, when I read the case, too, originally, like, this was the big lead-up at the end, and I literally remember, like, oh, shit. Ooh. So, several months before the murders at Corpsewood, 
Joey awoke from a nightmare and told Scudder it was about him. After hearing about the nightmare, Scudder decided to paint it. That painting depicted a self-portrait of Scudder, gagged and with five bullet holes in his head. Not long after completing the painting, a friend, Tracy Wilson, one of the only people allowed inside the manor, saw it, and Scudder told her, this is how I die. Oh, wow. Now, initially, it was actually thought that maybe Westerbrock had seen the painting and decided to recreate it, but both were positive that they had never seen the painting before. And these guys don't seem the top to be like, let's do this artsy and do it like the painting pre- Oh, show. no, they're not, they're not fucking bright enough to be like, you know what, we're going to make this artistic and live our own artistic lives. And they were two yeah, They were just kids. looking for money that didn't exist it's, while having a hostage along on a first date. It's And all of them hopped up on Toodaloo. <laughs> so we can't forget that, that fucking Toodaloo. Um, and that is the Corpsewood Manor Murders. That was an interesting one. That definitely could be a horror movie, especially because the gay guys die at the end. Jeez. Yeah, that is uh, usually what happens in gay movies. They usually die. That's why I didn't want to go see Call Me By Your Name at first because I was like, I know it's it's a queer movie, so I know either one of them's going to die or both of them are going to die. <laughs> they don't. Spoiler alert. But... um. Yeah, this has always been a case that's fascinated me, and I've always wanted to, I have always wanted to actually go visit the ruins because they're not that far, I don't think, a couple hours. Um, I definitely won't take anything or touch anything. But also I think this is a really good case because it just shows like the prejudice and the stigma, you know, queer people and even Satanists face in small-town America. Yeah, especially, like I said, in the Bible Belt, Coming down, being gay and Satanists, you're going to turn a lot of heads. You're going to get a lot of attention whether you want it or not, especially if you flaunt it, which you should be able to. But again, this is like 1982, and I would say doing that even now in Georgia, you would get a very uh, harsh welcome from the locals. Unfortunately, that is true, but also it's like, why can't we just let people live their lives? But unfortunately, that is the end of Dr. Charles Scudder and Joey. May they rest in peace. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a five-star review rating. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at beerswithqueerspod, P-O-D, pod or TikTok at Beers with Queers, or you can see the full-length video on YouTube at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. There we post evidence and photos from all the cases, so if you're a visual learner, check it out. We hope you come back next week. See you soon. See ya. See ya.